what is happening to your stomach? That's my stomach. Any any minute now I'm about to do a shit that is going to break the toilet. Um, please edit that out because that's gross. Hi, my name's Emily Chadbourne. And I'm Rochelle Fisher. And we're a couple of Xenials turning 40! Xenials are an often forgotten generation, sandwiched between the Gen X and the Millennials. Not quite one, but not quite the other either. We were brought up on Disney princesses, roller skates and Game Boys. Left to flounder through the grunge era of the 1990s and expected to catch up with tech life in the noughties, how prepared was the Xenial woman for the delights and disappointments of the current day? To celebrate our birthdays, Em and I decided to launch our own mini-series dedicated solely to issues that so many Xenial women face today. From egg freezing to ageing to being single, we have interviewed some amazing Xenials with stories to share. Enjoy this episode! Hello! Hi! <laughs> How are you today, Emily? Yeah, good, thanks. So there you just made me eat a whole sandwich and now I'm full and I feel a bit sick. Yeah, I because I, I pinned fall. you down and shoved it in your gob. Yeah. Do people say gob anymore? No. Is that just a northern thing? No, I think it was an 80s, 90s thing, wasn't it? Yeah, gobstoppers. Do you remember gobstoppers? Yeah, I do remember gobstoppers. I fucking hated gobstoppers. They weren't my thing, really. No. What was your favourite candy? <laughs> well. Sweets. Sweets. Loved the two pence sweets. Me too. I liked the Coca Cola bottles. Yeah, did you have the fizzy ones or the non fizzy ones? I like the non fizzy ones. Me too. The fizzy ones made the roof of my mouth scratchy. Mm. I liked the little fried eggs that you could get. Because you've got two of them now. <laughs> <laughs> Boom! Sorry. Hang! Well, they are like little bee stings, aren't they? <laughs> Stop being mean to me. <laughs> What did you get? One day I'm going to get boobies. One day I'm going to have a boob job and I'm going to come out looking like Katie Price <laughs> circa 1999. Great. And then you'll be sad. Well, I just won't be your friend. <laughs> <laughs> boob jobs used to be real bad in the 90s. Remember? Remember when Victoria Beckham had boob job and they were like underneath her armpits, basically? Mm. Like they were pretty, like plastic surgery used to be real shocking. All the boob jobs that I've seen in England. There's probably only been two that I've thought, wow, I would like those on my rack. As your rack? As my rack as well. For boobs. I mean, you know, don't do anything by halves, do I? Let's have four boobs. Let's go back to lollies. <laughs> Why am I calling yeah. them lollies? I've been in Australia for too long. Sweets. What else did you love? Space oh, Invaders. Oh, the spaceship Yeah, that's things. the ones I mean. What were they called? The oh. sherbet ones? Yeah, the flying saucers. Flying saucers. Oh. I said Space Invaders, but those were like the tomato-flavoured crisps that weren't really crisps. They were like... The weird. Weird air. Oh, you used to love scampi fries. Oh, yeah. yeah I was a fan of a scampi My dad fry. used to take us on a Sunday night to the um, local corner shop, as mm. we used to call them in England. And wasn't on a corner at all. That's Didn't the, need to be on a corner. It's just Irrelevant. a corner shop. And we were always allowed to pick a treat, a snack. Mm. And you and went I... for scampi fries. <laughs> you were the fucking kid I hated. The kids that stank of scampi fucking fries. That made your little, little gross little fingers like orange. 
I like the taste of like artificial fish coming from your mouth. <laughs> My mum always used to get those peppermint fry, you know, the peppermint fries or something. Fries? <laughs> like who made peppermint crisps? Peppermint creams? Yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> the makers were called fries. Oh, F-Y. yeah, so like the company, F-R-Y, like Roundtree's yeah. or something. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like peppermint. Mm. Can't remember what Do my remember brother used to Oh, yeah. Those were like little like chocolate covered <laughs> bits of stuff mm. that they scraped off the Cadbury's chocolate bar floor, weren't they, really? Like sometimes it was a raisin. Sometimes yeah. it was like maybe toffee. Yeah. Sometimes it was chewy, but you couldn't quite work out what it was, but you ate it anyway because it was the 80s and that's what you did. Did you have those? It was a, a little box of almost like chalk-like sweets. You pretended it was cigarettes. cigarettes. <gasps> that was so bad. I used to go and buy those with my pocket money and I would like strut around the house pretending to smoke. And then I'd <laughs> ask my mum for a wine glass full of apple juice <laughs> and I wonder why I ended up in AA. I'd like walk around pretending to smoke and drink wine. With your mum's high heels on? Always. And my mum had these teeny tiny little feet because my mum was like smaller than me. And Is so, that possible? I know, crazy right? She had three kids. Sometimes I think, how? My mum was really it? tall. No. Mm. I just always assumed that your mum was really small. No, my mum was tall. What happened to you? I don't know, because my brother's like six foot. And my dad wasn't like overly... It wasn't tall, but it wasn't short. Yeah, they always used to say I was the milkman's. So any milkman in the 1980s, Stonegate Road, you might have a daughter that now lives in Australia. <laughs> that smells of scampy fries. <laughs> Don't judge me. I judge you. I was more of a knickknacks girl myself. On the oh, old crisp no, pie. they got stuck in your teeth. No, that's what... And scampy fries didn't. Oh, come on. Skips. Love a skip. Oh. And to this day, one of the reasons that I get homesick is mini cheddars. No, I'm not a big mini cheddars oh, fan. Mini cheddars on a hangover. Pickled onion, monster munch. Oh, stop. That's the king of all confectionery, in my opinion. What was your favorite soundtrack to like, oh, that was my stomach, did you hear that? That was yeah. the sandwich moving. Get ready the salad, sa- I mean, the salad sandwich. Yeah, but it was a lot s- of it, wasn't it? The salad. But it was a lot of it. On rye bread, who are we? That's why it felt like there was a lot of it. It's quite mm. dense, isn't it? Mm. What was your favorite soundtrack yeah. of the 80s? 80s, 90s, childhood. Can I have two? Or is it one? Yeah, go on, you can have two. Brass. I love brass and the Grolsch bottle tops that they used to put on their shoes. I don't remember that. Yeah. So you know the Grolsch bottle tops of beer? They used to put them like on the shoes. Mm. Are you sure that's what it actually was? Wow, there you go. Look it up on the internet. Oh, I probably won't. <laughs> I'm gonna be honest. What do you do on the Saturday night? I look at Bross. What was your second one? So Bross would be when will, will I, I will I be famous? I can answer that. I can answer that. And then oh oh I don't know. It'd either be Kylie Minogue or Michael Jackson. 
So that's really interesting because mine is I'm too sexy for my shirt. Too sexy oh, right, for my shirt. Fred. Too sexy at home. Of course. I can now see you walking around the house with your mum's high heels on, your cigarette and your apple juice, <laughs> apple juice wine. wine. So me I'm and... too sexy for my cigarettes. <laughs> too sexy for my wine. Me and my friend Lisa Cousins who lived next door, we just played that song. I think probably on cassette. Over and over and over again. And I don't know if you remember these. This was like the fullest fashion faux pas of the 80s. Of like, um, like swirly, neon swirly leggings. Do you remember the, it was just colours in swirls? Yes. They weren't actually neon. They were just like really bright. Mm. Um, and then we both had matching like baseball caps with ice creams on them. <laughs> Loser! I'm too sexy for my shirt. Too sexy for my shirt. Too sexy and hot. Yeah, that and that and watching. And I always think of this whenever anyone references The Simpsons because now The Simpsons has become such a cult following, and you know there's all sorts of like just brilliant satire around mm. The Simpsons. It's great, but like back in the day when it first launched, it was a kids program. Four children. And do you remember, I'm the Bart Man. That's what I got on a record player for my 10th birthday. Yeah. My 10th, was it 10 or foot? No, 10th birthday, had a disco downstairs in the um, church hall. And it snowed, so not a lot of people came. Is that what your mum, it's because it snowed, Rochelle. That's why you've got no friends. <laughs> Is that what was happening there? And they got a snow machine out. <laughs> Secretly, it was 28 degrees. It's August. Because <laughs> no kids ever showed up. Um, and I remember getting that on a record. Do the Batman. Do the Batman. And I thought it was so cool. I had the, yeah. the very first four episodes of The Simpsons, like the very first four wow. episodes, one, two, three, and four, on VHS. And there was this one summer where Lucy Cousins and I just wore matching... I love how you call her Lucy Cousins. Yeah. All your friends from like school. You've got to you've got to call them by their full name. Yeah. Yeah. And oh, this is the cute story ever. So she had a younger brother called Ben Cousins. And then my best friend from school was Isabel Matravers. And the four of us were like this proper little gang this one summer. My dad built a shed right at the bottom of our garden. Mm. And it was like you know, it wasn't particularly sophisticated. It was just like some wood lent up against like the wooden stone, uh, the stone wall. Mm. So we put a sheet in front of the stone and then we got marker pens and we would write all over the sheet. And yeah, we just spent the whole summer in this little den. My mum made curtains and everything mm. for it. Well, we were a bit more sophisticated. I haven't finished the story. Oh, sorry, go Fucking on. Hell. I'm not just telling you about the den for no reason. It's going somewhere. So then the four of us would sit in the den and listen to Right Said Fred. <laughs> that is the end of the story. We actually had a shed that my brother every week would... I don't know why my dad bought a shed that had four windows in it. My brother used to love to play football uh. every week. Mark, not again! He'd always break a window, which was great for me because like, it meant that he was in trouble and I wasn't. But we had this shed. Were you one of those sisters? <laughs> me too. Yeah. I was totally one of those sisters. Um, we had this shed and that one side we had a climbing frame and you could climb up the climbing frame, run across the top of the shed, which was just our shed to play in. 
and then we had a massive tree and then you could jump up into the tree which my brother made into a tree house which again was just a few planks of wood he wouldn't let me up in the top part of the tree oh. i had to be in the bottom <gasps> wait for it one day my um nan is in the garden and he's like look nan look at my tree house look how strong it is jumps up falls straight through it says Mac. on his ass <laughs> that was like the beautiful thing about the 80s like today and i'm talking sweeping generalizations i know but like and it god it's so easy for me to say this but like i i'm a bit sad for the kids that they oh. sit at home and play on playstations like even my nieces and nephews who are now 16 and 14 you know my sister's like they just socialize in such a different way yeah. and she's like i don't get it because and i'm always like you've got to go out you've got to go and see your friends in real life but actually they are socializing all the time they're just doing it on whatsapp or they're zooming each other or they're on some kind of social media platform or like they're playing a virtual game together yeah. like i don't know like i just think there is something there was so much to be learned. There was such a resilience that was formed in building tree houses by yourself with no health and safety, with no adult present, and then jumping <laughs> until you fell through it. Like, yeah. that, was, that wasn't considered to be even dangerous, was it? It's not like your parents were reckless. Like, no. that wasn't considered to be a dangerous thing. We didn't, you didn't have to wear um, bike helmets. No. There weren't such things as bike helmets in the early 80s. They didn't even exist, even if you wanted to use them. Yeah, and we literally used to, I mean, six weeks holidays. Oh, were Those it, summer holidays, when summer was actually in August. Yeah. Because it's not anymore, it's in June now. But, like, yeah, they were great, weren't they? Hit the deck, we used to play hit the deck. Well, we just used to get on our bikes, go up to the local woods, and just hang out in the woods all yeah. day. I mean, I feel sorry that for children now that can't do that. We did have an amazing like childhood. Yeah. And I'm also really aware that A, we were born into privilege. We were yeah. born, I mean, I was born in the country. I don't know what up north is like, but well, I'm sure country there were trees everywhere. there. Um, <laughs> 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 um, but, you know, so I'm aware that, you know, you and I weren't born no. into poverty or into a council tower block or you know we were born into privilege very aware yeah. of that but with big back gardens big back gardens lots trees. of fresh air yeah um but you know my parents would say goodbye to us in the morning and we had to be home for tea time which was six o'clock every mm. single night and then as soon as we'd eaten our tea we'd be back out again and then it was home when the street lights went on and the street lights went on at 9 p.m sometimes you know so like you're just out the house all day yeah you were never in the house, were you? Never in the house, apart from in the winter. Mm. So, I could sit here all day and talk about the 80s and early 90s. Yes. But, let's talk about our next guest. Yeah, so this has been a really interesting conversation because it's something I know nothing about because I have no experience of it. And something you know nothing about. Crazy. Wow. I know. Well, what do you know about IVF? Bugger all. Mm. All I know is a lot of my friends have been through it and I've probably not been there to hold their hand through it because I don't understand it. Well, I also think it's a really private thing. Yeah. But it's is it a private very... thing because no one wants to talk about it? 
maybe once upon a time, but I feel like now it's a private thing because it's very invasive in your life. And that's, I hadn't realised that until we spoke to our guest today, yeah. Jess. I had not quite comprehended how invasive and all-consuming yeah. it becomes. Well, I mean, in the 80s, they were called test tube babies, weren't they? I genuinely, <laughs> hand on heart, when I was a kid, I thought that test tube babies looked like test tubes. Oh, cute. Yeah, because oh, they were born, like I just thought that the, the whole process was done in a test tube. Like, so no one had, no one gave birth. They didn't like have mums. They just like came oh, darling. out of a test tube. <laughs> and so they looked a bit like test tubes. I was really shocked. When yeah, was the like, first test tube baby? Oh, was that in the 80s? No, it was like 60s or early 70s in Manchester in England. Oh, there you mm. go. Yeah. But it wasn't common. No. And they were. They were called test tube babies. Yeah. So maybe that's why the stigma's around it. Whereas today, it's just, I think what you said, it's a private thing because it's so invasive. Yeah. And a lot of people do it like back in the 80s and 90s. It wasn't really heard of. It wasn't in mainstream media. People didn't really have access to it in the same way that they have access to it today. And there was certainly no marketing machine behind it. And there definitely is a marketing machine behind IVF today. And so I think it just, you didn't really hear about it as much. And before we listen to the interview, are more people having IVF now because people are waiting a little bit longer to get pregnant? I have babies yes. and we have been pumped with the pill, the contraceptive pill for 20 years of our life. Where do you stand on that? I don't know enough about that to say anything. I mean, it sounds like a feasible reason that we would see a rise in infertility mm. because, you know, we've been pumping ourselves full of hormones for so many years, I mean, I got put on the pill when I was 15. Mm. My mum didn't need to be present. There was no conversation about it. Was that because you're a little um, hood rat? <laughs> <laughs> That's so 90s, isn't it? That's a real 90s slang. But I, yeah, I, I don't really know enough about the pill. I, I can see right now from my own experience and from the experience that my friends are having that we are definitely leaving babies until later I mean, my mum had me when she was like 32 I think and that was late mm. that was you yeah. know it was uncommon that women or that many women had children in their mid to late 30s whereas now it's like yeah you know someone said to me the other day oh, I'm 32 I'm thinking about having kids I'm like but you're so young and I was like actually yeah. you're not Repro reproductively you're not young yeah my mum was 24 when she got married 26 when she had my brother and 28 when she had me mm. boom done Whereas now, if someone said, oh, I'm 28, I'm having a baby, I'd be like, fuck, man, that's yeah, real young. That's young, yeah. So I'm actually reading, or should I say listening, to a woman called Dr. Sarah E. Hill, How the Pill Changes Everything. That's interesting. Is mm. it about reproduction or is it about... Well, chapter two is we are our hormones. Oh, I know that. I know that, <laughs> Dr. Hill. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, she was on the pill for 20 years, um, yeah. but she's very sat on the fence. She's looking at it from both angles, only on chapter two at the minute. So I'll um, maybe let you know in a few weeks or months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, a couple of years when you eventually finish listening yeah. to it. All right, well, for now, let's find out everything that we need to know about an IVF journey. We have the great pleasure of speaking to a great friend of mine called Jess. 
um, and she's very open and honest about her IVF journey. So you are a zenial woman. Yes. And you and I first met probably about five or six years ago, and I think we were buying wine at the bar which sounds about right. Yeah, sounds about right to me. And we were doing our coaching training here in Melbourne. And one of the first things you told me about yourself was your struggle with IVF. And in fact, that's what brought you to the coaching community in the first place. Yeah, indeed. So I'm just going to let you sort of launch on into that, if that's okay, if you'd happily share your story about your IVF journey. Yeah, sure. I started trying for a baby when I was 32, almost 33. And I guess I didn't necessarily have that view that it was going to happen for me straight away, but I didn't not have that view either. I'd had a couple of girlfriends who had had issues with infertility, so I was kind of aware of it. But I suppose before they'd had those problems, like I'd never really crossed my mind. I'd always just thought, I guess, growing up as you do, that when the time's right and you want to have a baby, that you'll have a baby. After going through infertility, you always kind of look back and have a little bit of a laugh about all the times where, you know, condom broke or you missed the pill or something like that and you're so super paranoid that you're pregnant you're like well clearly I was not (laughs) I really can't get pregnant (laughs) getting pregnant or trying to have a baby kind of started the same way for me as it does for everybody else who's trying who doesn't maybe already know that they've got an existing issue that might cause some fertility problems so initially it was fun you know we, we we got married and we just sort of said okay well let's get straight on with it and uh, kind of tied into that honeymoon phase quite nicely. And then months went by and months went by and months went by and it started to take a while and so it started to get a little less fun. And so you kind of progress from just that kind of spontaneous, let's just see what happens into things like your ovulation testers, like, you know, and you think, okay, well, cool, when I know the timing of my ovulation, then I'm going to I'm going to nail this, right? You know, that's pretty much, I've just been doing it at the wrong time. (laughs) um, And then we did the ovulation testing and sort of cycle tracking. And then we've been going on like this for quite a long time. And it started to progress to what anyone who's going through infertility knows into this thing where it becomes like a job. Like, so you have to really kind of get to know your cycle in a way you've never done before you have to take your temperature every single day at the same time to track your cycle so you have to wake up and first thing you have to do before you talk before you drink before you anything else is stick a thermometer in your mouth and honestly I think I still have PTSD about that I really hate hate I love the fact that we have like you know the thermometers that you point at yourself externally the idea of sticking a thermometer in my mouth these days just is not appealing. Um, So I was tracking my cycles, I was the ovulation kits doing all that stuff and month after month, still nothing. When you hit that 12 month mark, they always say, you know, go see your doctor. And I had a really fantastic GP who was very focused and understanding around the sort of fertility issues that women can face. And so she did loads of different tests, checked everything, couldn't see anything that was indicating that there was a problem and then said, look, give it another few months and then maybe you might want to consider going to see someone who's a specialist just to ask about what's going on. So I booked that appointment because they always take a few months to get into. And then three days before I was supposed to go to the appointment, I found out I was pregnant. Of course, extremely exciting. And I remember going into my GP and I'd been in the day before about something else, like I hadn't been feeling well or something and I 
remember coming back and her saying, oh, you know, it's a bit something to see you again. And I was like, well, you know, I'm, I'm pregnant. And so she was really excited as well. And so was I. And we did the blood test just to kind of have a look because when you pee on a stick, you, you kind of find out that it tells you that you're pregnant. Mm. But a blood test kind of confirms what is called your HCG level. So it's basically a hormone rising in your body that indicates pregnancy and you want to see it continuing to go up and double and triple so we're very excited and I remember that night we had a school concert for my stepson I hadn't heard from the doctor I hadn't heard anything about my blood test and it was a Friday night and I was kind of thinking oh well no news is good news right and so we're sitting at this school concert and it was a bit of a later finish it was something like 6 30 and they had a sausage sizzle and stuff and I remember I'm standing there with my sausage and my phone rings and I look and I say it's my doctor and so I answer the phone and she says look I've got good news and bad news. The good news is that there's definitely a pregnancy, but the bad news is that the numbers aren't where we want them to be. She's like, I'd like you to come back in on Monday and we'll do another test. And so I went from that kind of high of thinking, oh, finally, you know, we've got there to thinking, oh, okay, I don't know what that means. And she'd sort of tried to reassure me and just say, look, you know, it could just be because it's sort of an early test and what we need to see is it doubling and moving. So what it's doing on Monday is going to really tell us what's happening. Mm. Still, it's that moment of doubt and disappointment. All of that. And, you know, and I'd gone from, you know, sort of, just that feeling of elation to kind of starting to question things a little bit. But I tried to get in a good headspace about it. When I came back on the Monday and had the blood test, my levels had only gone up by five and they really want to see that double. So I had that awful conversation that you have when someone tells you that they don't think, and I hate the use of this word, that your pregnancy is viable. Oh, what does that even mean? I think for anyone who's ever gone through this, and I was listening to a podcast the other day where someone was talking about how every pregnancy results in a birth doesn't matter how long you were pregnant for mm. every pregnancy results in a birth every pregnancy counts and matters to women and doesn't matter if you've been trying for 14 months like I had or if you've been trying for less time than that I was basically just told that I was gonna I was gonna lose my baby And it was just a matter of time to wait. And I didn't know what to do. And I'd had a friend who had had an early pregnancy loss at work. And I remember her talking about how awful that was. Mm. And I didn't want to, I didn't know when this was going to happen. I didn't know how it was going to happen. I didn't know what it was going to mean. And what happened to me with my first pregnancy was I ended up in this horrible waiting game because... I had really understanding bosses and, you know, they knew that I'd been trying to get pregnant and that I'd been having some difficulty. And when I rang them and told them what happened and I said, look, I just don't think I can be in the office so I can work from home. And they were like, that's fine. So after four days sitting around working from home, nothing's happening. I'm not spotting, I'm not bleeding, I'm not anything. And I'm like, this just doesn't feel right. So I rang my doctor and she said, look, come back in, we'll do another blood test. So we did that and my numbers were great. So they'd done this huge jump up. Then I went into this spiral of, oh, my God, I've been sitting here kind of willing this to happen. (laughs) And actually, you know, what I really wanted was happening. She wanted to do another test two days later just to see what was going on. That next test, again, hadn't jumped up. So I'd gone from like a low level, just a little bit up to a normal level to just a little bit up. They're starting to get a bit weird. And that is usually an indication that something's going on that's not quite right. It was Good Friday. Um, or the day before Good Friday, it was Thursday. And I woke up in the morning and I just, for about 30 seconds, I just had this kind of pulsing feeling near my ovary. Like it was, it was a little bit painful. It wasn't 
it, it was weird. It was like a weird sensation and then it went away and I didn't feel anything else. And I was going into my doctor that day anyway because she'd wanted to do another blood test. And so when I got there, I mentioned it to her. I, I almost didn't even mention it to her. Like, you know, I think I just, she just said, oh, how have you been feeling? You haven't had any discomfort or any cramping. And then I think that kind of triggered me to say, oh, I had this weird kind of, it wasn't a cramp. It was just like this pulsing on one side. And she said, look, okay, well, I just want to have a little feel around. So she sort of poked my tummy a little bit and said, is anything painful? And thankfully she had the foresight to say to me, um, I just don't feel comfortable unless we get this checked. So she managed to get me squeezed in at an ultrasound place around the corner. And I was about eight weeks, at the, seven, eight weeks at the time. And so we should have been able to see a heartbeat, those kind of things if everything was normal. And I remember talking to Rich, he was at work and he said, do you want me to come? And he was in the middle of a meeting and I was like, no, no, it's fine. We're not gonna really see anything anyway. And God, I regretted that decision so bad because I got there and when they had a look on the ultrasound, they could clearly see that my pregnancy was ectopic. So it was in the fallopian tube. So that meant that without a doubt, the pregnancy wasn't going to continue. And also that I needed to have emergency surgery to remove it. And so they took me out of the ultrasound room and took me into another room to kind of sit on my own while I waited for a taxi <laughs> and they said we're going to contact your doctor and your obstetrician will get in touch about organising having this removed and I just sat in there and cried <laughs> on my own and it was horrible and then I went home that night and my obstetrician rang and said look don't get me wrong this is definitely an emergency but given it's uh, six o'clock on a Thursday night it's obviously safer to operate in the morning so come in the next morning at like seven. So I went home and didn't really know what to do with myself for the night. And I, I thought I was really restless. I felt like I had sciatica. I didn't, my fallopian tube ruptured. And it took me a little while to kind of figure it out because I wasn't feeling the pain in the front, I was feeling it in the back. And so I was kind of bleeding into my kidney and it was shooting down the Gosh. back of my leg. So I ended up having surgery at like two o'clock in the morning. And so that was my first pregnancy and I really, bounce back you yeah. know like I was like right <laughs> sweet you know yeah <laughs> like, still got a tube yeah that's it next time I'm in the Get game on. I'm in the game although one of the things that happened to me in that that I didn't know about um beforehand and I feel like isn't talked about enough is that I woke up and I felt fine and I felt oddly fine for a couple of days I was just sort of like sweet everything's good you know like I'm really positive and okay this was awful and it was shit but you know what we're we're gonna get back in there and then I had what I now know was like an epic hormone crash because in my instance my body didn't and I think it still happens with people with pregnancy losses that aren't ectopic anyway but from conversations that I've had with other women but I think in my instance my body didn't necessarily know it wasn't pregnant anymore because the pregnancy was removed. And so it took a couple of days for it to catch up and for those pregnancy hormones to drop. And it's sort of akin to what I see now, um, a student midwife with women a few days after their baby's born and they have that huge drop in pregnancy hormones so that their milk can come in mm. and they get really emotional. And I lost it, I was a mess. I went on to IVF after that and had the great misfortune of doing my first round of IVF and having that swim up into my 
clear fallopian tube plant there and so right. another <laughs> yeah it's like a 0.1 percent wow. chance yeah. so like you kind of ivf originally was invented for women who had fallopian tube issues because it bypasses the fallopian tube so instead my body shimmied it up and actually when i was pregnant with lucy my placenta was really high so i wonder if my uterus just naturally draws things yeah. way up to the top <laughs> not going anywhere <laughs> So yes, I had, um, I did IVF. I got pregnant on my first round and I thought, oh, sweet, we're all done. But yeah, it was another ectopic. This one was a little bit different because I obviously knew about my history and with IVF, they're testing your blood all the time. And when, as soon as they noticed that weird pattern, my IVF doctor said to me, this looks really, really similar. I can tell you you know, I'm very sorry that this pregnancy isn't going anywhere. And actually what I think the best thing for us to do is just to get in and sort it out. So I don't want you to end up with another experience where it ruptures because that's actually massive medical emergency. <laughs> you know, if you can bleed significantly internally, it's one of the causes of maternal death in pregnancy if you don't, you know, don't have access to a hospital and things like that. So I actually went into that operation not knowing if I would come out with a fallopian tube or not. So I didn't know if it was just an early pregnancy loss or I didn't know if it was an ectopic. And so when I woke up, my doctor was there and said to me it was in the fallopian tube and we had to remove the tube, we couldn't save it. Again, I bounced back really fast and my mindset was, okay, well, I got pregnant straight away with IVF. The only problem is these pesky fallopian tubes. I don't have them anymore. I'm just going to get pregnant straight away. And so the next round, when I didn't get pregnant, it was like everything came down like a house of cards. Mm. And I had this huge collapse and I was like, this is never going to happen for me. I don't understand what's wrong, you know. And by this point, I think one of the things people don't realise with IVF is it's like a full-time job. And it, it overtakes an infertility even in general. Like it overtakes your entire life. Like there's not one space of your life that it doesn't touch. It hits you financially. It hits you emotionally. It hits you socially. It hits your relationship, your relationship both with your partner and with yourself. And a lot of women, you know, really get into that mode where they feel like their bodies are broken and there's something wrong with them. And it's kind of like whenever you have those big crises in life that you've got to get through, whatever you haven't dealt with before in life comes up mm. and you can either deal with it then or you can keep putting a lid on it and moving forward. And I feel like I did a bit of both, but it's kind of what brought me to coaching and to meeting you because my background psychology and I'd never really, like other than organizational psychology, I'd never really worked in that space, but I did start to realize how little was out there for that wider support. Like there's a lot of health support. There's a lot of, you know, acupuncture and naturopaths and believe me, you do them all. You're drinking these hideous potions. You you get an acupuncture, you're getting certain types of massage, you're not drinking alcohol, you do like, you know, you're eat, only eating these types of foods. Like it really kind of, you know, it, it's exhausting and it can ruin your social life quite a lot for people who don't understand it, particularly if you've got friends who aren't having kids yet. Um, or who have lots of kids. Or have lots of banging kids. Banging them out, left, right and centre. And people say shit things. They say yeah. shit things, like well-meaning, because they don't know what to say. It took me nine stimulated rounds of IVF to get pregnant. We discovered we had a whole bunch of all of these other issues and stuff as we went along. And in some senses, we were kind of lucky to have issues because I think the worst type of infertility is unexplained because there's just not much they can do about it. Mm. But I was getting less and less embryos. I, you know, a lot of people will stimulate and get enough embryos to kind of transfer for two years. Whereas for me, every time I transferred, I had to stimulate 
And so it was was drawn out. It was long. It went for like four years. Mm. Um, it was a lot of money. It was a lot of time, and it was a lot of physical toll, a lot of injections, a lot of all those kind of things. And I'm and so much disappointment. So much disappointment every single month. My doctor was amazing. Like if anyone's looking for an IVF doctor, Nicolologist at Monash is the best because he. He doesn't sit on his laurels. Like every single time I went in there, he said, okay, this is what worked well. This is what we're going to try and change. You know, it wasn't like, okay, let's just do the same thing again, which I think if you're paying a lot of money for something and it's not working and you're doing it over and over again, you're sort of like, hang on a sec, why aren't we mixing this up? What are, what are we learning from this? Like what's happening? And I remember like the last time I went in to see him before I transferred the embryo that would be Lucy, he said to me, look, I feel like we're hitting the end of the line here. Like there's not really much else we can try. So we can keep doing what we're doing, but maybe it's time to start considering options. And I was super flat. Like I just remember thinking, oh fuck, you know, we really are at the end of the, the line here. But I do remember going in for the transfer and Rich couldn't make it that day because I think he was traveling for work or whatever. And so I went in on my own and I remember talking to him before and he was kind of like, oh, you know, are you okay? Is it, you know, how exciting and everything. I was like, mm-hmm. it was the first time I'd gone in like that. Usually I was like, yes, I'm going to go meet my baby. I'm going to see a picture of it. And because they were all my babies, even if they didn't work, I got to see them. They existed, you know? Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting down and the lady came in and it was the only time we ever transferred two embryos. And she showed me the pictures and I saw the first one and I was like, and I saw the second one. I looked at it and I just went, that's it. And it's a girl. <laughs> no way. I just knew. I just knew. I, I just had this and I'd been doing this fertility yoga and that was amazing for me because I connected with this room full of women and we'd all be there every week from completely different walks of life, completely different ages. Like, you know, infertility is a level that just can hit anyone, right? But mm. there's no reason why, you know, in particular necessarily. And um, in that yoga, I used to, at the end, in Shavasana, I used to connect with her. I used to see her. I used to feel her. I knew, like, I just, and I just knew, I knew that it, and, like, when I was connecting in on the mat, I didn't necessarily know if it was a boy or a girl. I was connecting with, like, a spirit energy. Mm. But when I saw the picture, I knew it was that. And Rich was super nervous the whole time, and I was just like, nah, it's fine. <laughs> but I do see a lot of women who have gone through that experience of pregnancy loss, they're super anxious throughout their pregnancy. It alters their pregnancy experience. It alters their birth experience. They're quite often talked into interventions because, Mm. you know, the fear of getting that far and not ending up, like it's almost like it's not real until that baby's in your arms. And then when that baby is in your arms and you should just be a normal mum, like who gets to go through all the ups and downs of being a new parent, the joys and the horrors of being a new parent, you feel like you can't because you have to be so fucking grateful for this baby that you've got. Mm. Um, And there's that extra element of pressure that after all this time, and I definitely had those rose-coloured glasses, I felt like the baby would be the easy bit. Like, I'm like, I've climbed this fucking mountain. When I get to the top, I'm going to be the best mum and I'm going to be patient and I'm going to be all of these things. It's going to be easy. It's I'm going to be love easy. her so much and it's going yeah. to be... and I do love her so much, but it has not been easy. Yeah, because kids are hard, <laughs> Exactly, right? yeah. exactly. 
infertility is one of the biggest health crises in the world at the moment. Why do you think that is? Look, I think there's a combination of reasons for that. So one of the obvious ones would be that we're having babies later. Yeah. Um, I was and listening... that's, a, that's a Gen X, Xenial thing as exactly. well, isn't it? Oh, ex- exactly. And look, I think evolution will catch up with that. The average age of getting your period's already starting to shift a bit higher than it was than when we were young. And that's going to continue to happen because our bodies are clever things, but that happens slowly. That happens over time. The way that our cultural lives have evolved, what we do as women is very different. I mean, my mum had her first baby when she was 20. She was done when she was 27. Like yeah. I didn't even think about having babies until I was 33. Yeah. And Well, the, it's considered, if you have babies in your 20s these days, that's considered to be very it's young. It's considered Whereas to be technically optimal age is 27, is it, yeah, I think? Yeah, exactly, yeah. And if you are like me and you have a baby over the age of 35, you are a geriatric pregnancy. Hey, <laughs> yeah, something to... There's so many terminologies in this world that just make women feel... <laughs> amazing about themselves and their babies and stuff and also there are so many different ways to have babies these days technology is really pushing people's abilities to freeze your eggs at 27 and have a baby at 43 there's there's so many different ways I mean I sometimes like stare at Lucy and I just can't believe that you know at some point she was deep frozen yeah (laughs) um and defrosted (laughs) and also that that she was made in a in a, lab. in a lab. It'll be interesting to see this generation of women who are having babies later and having to do IVF and do things like that for longer where they're stimulating ovulation and they're, they're removing multiple eggs at a time. Does that bring menopause forward? Mm. You know, because we're born with our number of eggs. Like, you know, yeah. I've, I've taken out like three years worth of eggs. Yeah, <laughs> like, you know? that's so interesting. Does, it, does that bring that process forward for me? And, yeah. You know, it's not... Those sort of things, they're not really talked about in IVF. It's very focused on the goal of getting you that baby. Yeah. And it doesn't really talk about the aftermath. So what is the effect of all of those hormones that you took on your body? Yeah. Like what is the effect of of removing all of those eggs early on your body when you hit that perimenopausal or menopausal phase? Like does it change things? Well, and to an extent as well, you know, again, with the Gen X and the Xenial generation being at the forefront of the pill and that type of level of contraception, Huge. is that one of the reasons that women are struggling to conceive now? Because oh. we have been on the pill for, since we were, I mean, I went on the pill when I was 15. 15, easy. It's like, you know, it's like a thing you just had to do, even if you weren't sexually active, yeah. like everyone was on it. I did it because my periods were heavy. Well, and it was, the doctor just went, here, take this every month. And I went, okay. And I didn't think about it, well, not for a second. It, the pill has been around since the 60s, but it was a lot harder to get access to. And I think we're one of those first generation of women who have been taking the pill since they were 15 for contraception purposes or acne or whatever else it is that they and prescribe. And different pills. I've been yeah. on so many different so many pills. different pills. Oh, my God. And you sort of switch it up and change it to see what works. And I'm sure, like, you know, there's probably some women from our mother's generation who took the pill for a longer patch of time but they probably took it after they had kids so they probably you know maybe took it for a little bit in their teenage years had kids in their early 20s and then went back on it for contraception after that whereas where that that generation that started taking it young and has taken it for 10 or 15 years 
it, it's interesting to watch. Like some people's experience of that, they'll come off the pill and they'll get their cycles back straight away. They'll get pregnant straight away. But I was listening to something a couple of months ago and they were talking about how the pill suppresses like 150 different actions in the body like it's amazing and we just don't have this education and even for me like since I've had Lucy I don't have floping tubes I don't need it for conception yeah. like, you have a contraception I am, I'm good I am barren <laughs> uh, you know it'd be the baby Jesus you know like um coming again if I um if I got pregnant but I've had it suggested to me for um because ever since I've had my ectopics um I've had a bit of endometriosis just from you know, cross scarring and, you know, all of those kind of things. I've had it suggested to me for that, like it's the be all and end all. And I was like, look, there has to be another way because I have taken so many hormones in this lifetime, like so many hormones. I feel like I can't take anymore. Mm. Like I just want my body to be allowed to be like yeah. um, whatever that is, whatever moods it takes me on, wherever it pushes me. Yeah. But I think it's definitely a huge factor. Yeah. It's certainly an interesting time to be a woman. We live in a generation where we have been told that we can have it all. Yeah. And when we are told we can have it all, we interpret that as I should have it all. You know, you should have a good career. Have you traveled the world? Have you had multiple boyfriends before you settle down with your partner? Yep. Have you experienced everything that is to be experienced? Okay, great, now you're 38, go have a kid real quick because yep. time's running out. And so there is definitely, I think that that expectation that our generation has of you should have it all and that includes having a happy healthy baby naturally and I think it also that feeds into postpartum as well so whether you've had a baby through IVF or not our generation of women we're combating the yummy mummies on social media so Ugh. what should your body look like on the other side that perfection image that you know I only can post pictures of me when I've got my smiling baby and it's doing this and doing that not like in my case when it vomits 500 times a day for a year mm. <laughs> like and you spend the entire time both of you just covered in vomit like I had days where I literally just didn't wear clothes <laughs> because like I can't wash anything anymore I just can't do it um and you have that sort of perception and also there's that thing which is partly about you feeling like it's what you should do or about the lifestyles we've created for ourselves that mean financially we don't have the option not to where you feel like you have to go back to work or you feel guilty if you go back to work, you feel guilty about putting your kid in daycare and not being there with your kid. You can't win and you feel like you somehow need to be able to find this awesome balance so that when you get home, you can't be exhausted from a day of work. You've got to then feel, fill your kid up with all of that stuff that they didn't get from you during the day because they're at daycare getting it from someone else. Mm. Like The thing that I constantly struggle with is that balance as well because I feel like, again, I should... I should feel like I want to be at home with my kids all the time when the reality is I actually don't. I love my kids. I love spending time with them, but I love to work. Mm. I really love it. I love to stretch my mind. And it's like having that paradox of being able to have had that experience before so you know what it's like. And it's so intrinsic to who you are as a person and if it's your passion, what you do for a living, then having to step out of that. Like as women in Western society, when we become a mother, we step out of society. So we step back, we take a demotion, whereas in other cultures, non in traditional cultures, women are revered and they step up. And it's like, how do you find the balance between that? And mm. our generation is juggling that and a lot of the time failing. Um, yes. And it contributes to self-doubt, to guilt, to postnatal depression, 
all of those kind of things and it's just different yeah I completely agree I think as someone who doesn't have children yeah and is about to turn 40 I definitely have to like put this imaginary like it's like I call it my human disco ball yeah I like have to put this sort of refractory kind of shield on when people question my decision not to have children because it makes me feel like I'm not caring I don't you know I'm, I'm not maternal in any way that I don't have feeling it's just this they clearly this, haven't met Theodore exactly, <laughs> the most spoilt dog in the southern hemisphere um it it's definitely a narrative that I have to navigate with myself which is I am allowed to choose not to have children yeah. and still be a caring, compassionate, loving, kind, vibrant, worthwhile woman. And so it's almost like whatever you choose in our society today, you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't. Exactly. And particularly for women. Yeah. Particularly for women, you know. And our entire system is set up to kind of medicalize women to suppress our hormones the whole way through, starting at the pill, moving through to like HRT stuff when you're going through menopause. It's like, oh, that's pesky feelings and emotions that come. How with dare hormones. you be angry? Yeah. Don't be an angry <laughs> yes, woman. Yeah. What do we do with we angry women? We'll drug emotion. them. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Or sad women, you know. I was having um, a conversation a little while ago about how I actually feel like I haven't processed the grief of the babies that I lost because I didn't give myself the space to do that because I felt like I had to put a brave face on it. I felt like I had to keep powering through it. I felt like I had to just pretend like it didn't matter as much as it mattered. Because it's not a real baby, right, well, Jess? Well, this is My the goodness. thing. Exactly. Come on, just, yeah. yeah. And, and it's so medicalised. Exactly. So the terminology doesn't exactly. even support the emotion. Exactly. And, you know, I think also a little bit of it was that in order to continue to get the result that I did, if I fell in a heap, I couldn't have done it. You know, mm. like I had to, I had to just dust myself off and move forward and everybody else around me. Cause I think in my life, I, I play the role of the supporter a lot. I'm the person who's organized, the person who's got the ability to kind of stand strong in a situation where it needs empathy and space holding and things like that. And so partly it's me, like I'm not very good at letting other people hold space for me, or I'm not very good at letting myself have space, but it's also everybody else around as well. Even like family and, and parents and things like that, you know, they want you to be okay. And so you kind of have to be okay to manage their emotion. Mm. That's what happens. I think a lot in this day and age where you have to, and I'm going to look at we can only speak for our generation because that's what we've experienced, right? And I'm sure it's been the same in different and other challenging ways. I mean, we're talking about how it's difficult for us because we've got too many options to kind of fall across, whereas, you know, women previously didn't have enough and we're fighting for those options. So we've got to have some gratitude in there as well for the fact that we can. But it's just the, the language that we use around it and what we allow ourselves to do with it. I'm studying to be a midwife and as part of that we do placements in nursing as well. And I did a placement in a palliative care a while ago and there was this beautiful old lady who came in and didn't have much family coming in to visit her and she loved a little can of lemonade but she couldn't hold it herself. And I remember being in there with her one day and she was sipping away at the can and I don't know how it came up it just kind of does I guess when it's your story I suppose you know like it came up with you when we first met we started talking about our babies I think we we're talking about her family and her kids and stuff and she was asking if I had kids and then she said to me I had a I had another baby and I haven't spoken about her because I wasn't allowed to and I lost her when she was born 
Um, so she'd had a stillbirth and she said, and nobody talked about it. She said, I just went home and nobody talked about it and I wasn't allowed to talk about it and I haven't talked about her for years and it was pouring out of her. She needed somebody who could sit there and hold that space with her and understand what it felt like. We still have that. We still got that. That's still going on. Like it's maybe a little bit better than it was, but it is because of those things where the generations before haven't been allowed to speak about it and the attitude that comes with it. And I talk about it all the time. <laughs> like I just feel like the more people who start talking about it and start saying, this happened to me, this is how it happened to me. It's why when I was going through it, I wrote a blog and said, you know, about all the experiences that I had with it. It's why I started to move into working with couples who were going through that, that experience, which then has obviously led me on to midwifery. Worked my way through understanding the sort of dance that that time of life plays for women, mm. you know, but I really also appreciate what you're saying about your choice not being validated. Like, why is that not okay? Like, mm. why do people have to have an opinion about who you are because of what you do? Yeah. Like, I just... It's crazy, isn't it? Makes them... It's about them. It's not about you, isn't it? Yes. But hence the human disco yeah. ball that I stand inside sometimes. Yeah. Just that actually that's your fear, your paradigm, your construct, yep. your impression of what it must, what what someone must be in order to be a mother or to choose not to be a mother. Yeah. And you, you can't take it on because otherwise you'd be forced into making decisions that don't feel aligned. It's been really useful to hear your perspective. I think more than anything else to me, it's like allowing other women to have space to experience what they're experiencing. Yeah. I think that's really important. We're going to close with three questions. Yep. I'm going to bring out your zenial. <laughs> uh, what is your fondest memory from the 1980s? Sorry, I just noticed you have boobs on your necklace. And I, I do. Look, they're funny little boobs. They're for <laughs> breast cancer awareness. Brilliant. I Isn't love it great? <laughs> that totally distracted me. Um, <laughs> so my favourite sort of trend or craze. I, in the 80s, I loved a roller skate. Oh, yeah. Loved a roller skate. The roller skating ring. What's happened to those? They were so cool. I think they're coming back. Oh. I think we're now retro. Oh, yeah, okay. We're hitting retro because I yeah. have seen a lot of people on roller skates and stuff. And I was just thinking about it. I'm thinking Lucy's probably just that little bit too young. But... When I was like, you know, probably from eight onwards and my friends and I would go to the roller skating rink every weekend or we'd roller skate around the streets and they'd have the disco music and you'd play the games. and Wearing your fluoro. Go around holding hands with a boy. Yeah, crimp your oh, hair. Yeah. Uh, in your, in your uh, I think in, a, in the UK you might have called them shell suits, but we called them parachute track suits. Oh no, yes, yeah, shell with the, suits. With the um, sports girl t-shirt. So good, yeah, yeah. and that, reversible jumpers. Reversible that jumpers. That was the other oh, the thing that was okay. Color. That's coming back a little bit too. What is so? The hyper color. Did you have oh, those? No. You know, yeah. So it's like one color, and then you know, if you touch it or it gets warm, it changes color. Excellent yeah. technology. technology. Look where it got us. <laughs> what is the biggest difference between turning thirty and forty for you? Um, oh, I was funny actually. I kind of felt like I was forty for a while before I turned forty. Um, I think it's lifestyle, isn't it? I mean, you know, and maybe that's different for everybody. But for me, like when I turned 30, um, I just met my husband. I was about to get married. I was still going out for epic work drinks on a Friday night, you know, and all of those kind of things. That sort of footloose and fancy free feeling, whereas uh, turning 40, I'm very settled in my life. Like, you know, I've got different passions and outlets and stuff and seeing friends is a different it's different it's not that you still don't go out maybe have a drink or two but it's like you know a bit more civilized most of the time 
with the exception of when I catch up with my best friend who I don't see very often because she lives somewhere else. And then it's like a reversion. Yeah, <laughs> I'm 20 again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but hangovers, hangovers yeah. are definitely Well, that, and that's what, that's what you pace yourself. <laughs> yeah, that's it? exactly it. I don't really, I never used to get hangovers when I was 30. Don't get them too badly now. But yeah, I think that that's probably that transition. It's just your life's different, isn't it, really? Like you're just in a different space. Like you... You, you're parenting whether it's pets or kids or um, yourself. yourself and you, you're more accountable. Like you kind of sort of realise a little bit more that your actions matter. And your greatest life lesson to date? Definitely becoming a mum, I think. And when I say that, I mean from my very first pregnancy, like that process of going through all of that, but particularly the experience of being a parent to and, and like you know I suppose I've been a parent to lot in a lot of ways but it, it's a different experience of that because like I said the accountability is not there and the guilt's not there it's kind of more of a friendship which is really lovely I wish all, all parenting could be like that but yeah that experience of turning yourself inside out like I remember reading once someone saying like becoming a mother is like finding a room inside yourself that you didn't know existed and like most big life lessons, you know, whether it's that or it's something else that happens to you, it shines a light on all the things in you that you like and it shines a light on all the things in you that you don't like. And it it's an everyday teaching because it's in your face every day. <laughs> you don't get to get away from it. Yeah. Yes, and when they're little, there's no filter. Yeah. So there's that little mirror of all of the things I don't like about myself. Exactly, yeah, yeah exactly. But I think it's also... It's a, an epic lesson in not putting your shit on someone else. Like you really feel the consequences of that. I feel the consequences of that daily. Like I'm like I don't want my daughter to feel like I felt about that. Like I want her to have her own experience and letting her be herself. Like so kind of finding that right level of moulding so they understand what's right and wrong and they have values and those kind of things. But like giving them the space to kind of just be themselves and mm. not be self-conscious and just discover who they are. And that's very difficult because, you know, you want to do things. I'm a bit of a perfectionist. I want to fix things. Yeah. <laughs> and also you're still doing that with yourself, aren't exactly. you? Like I'm still working out who I am yeah, and, massively. and how to be like fully in my expression of self. You were born into that full expression of self. And then you lose it along the way because you go to school and you begin to, like you say, you it's, begin to see the contrast between people. It's breaking my people. heart watching it happening. I can see it falling off her. And, yeah. you know, I know it breaks my heart. I just want to, yeah. you know, but I have to have to let her. Yes, know. absolutely. Yeah. And then you just hope that when she gets to nearly 40, she'll have the ability to be like, hang on a minute, I get to put down all of those constructs that I learned. Yes. And I get to go back to being... Who I want to who be. Who I want to be. Thank you so much. Pleasure. I really appreciate all of your time. Thanks so much. I will link you into the show notes. I know that you are very busy studying for your midwifery degree at the moment, but um, you also do some hypnobirthing and you're just a, an epic woman to follow. So thank you. I'll pop your details below. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I definitely feel more educated after that conversation. It's interesting as well because I knew Jess throughout her IVF process, but I'd never heard that story. story and never had I heard it in that sort of condensed fashion. You know, you hear it over the course of a few months or even a couple of years of like, mm. oh, this is happening now or this is happening now and this is the stage where we're at. Or, But actually to hear it like in one sitting was really quite confronting because it's it's so much so much to put your body through 
Yeah. I have a newfound respect for and any, empathy yeah. to my friends who are going through IVF. Yeah, me too. For anyone going through it. Yeah, I feel like I've got more information about it so I can be more compassionate. I think I hadn't realised how completely all-consuming it can be. Yeah, I feel almost, not ashamed, that's the wrong word, but my friends that have gone through it, I've just been a bit like, oh, yeah, great, whatever, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've been dismissive. I've been really mm. dismissive, and that's not fair to those people because things have happened to me in my life that they've not been through, but they've given me the space and the love and I don't feel as I've given them it back in the IVF Because journey. you haven't had the lived experience of it, yeah. One, but people don't talk about it. So, like, we've both experienced death, but people talk about people dying. Mm. No one talks about IVF, so how can we then give that really gentle, soft approach? Because we're not educated on it enough. Mm. Does that but make can sense? you be educated on it without going through it? No. Probably not. But I do feel a bit, yeah, like I've bypassed it and brushed it under the carpet a little bit of something that's not that big a deal. Whereas now I'm like, oh, wow, my poor friends that have been through it. I just kind of, honestly, I just kind of thought that, like, I mean, I know that egg harvesting is a pretty invasive experience, mm. but I kind of just assumed that they got a little egg in a little dish and asked a guy to jizz in a cup and then just threw a turkey baster up yeah like I genuinely hadn't realized it was so scientifically complex and although I'd heard women talk about like having hormone injections and all that kind of stuff I hadn't quite realized I think how brutal and yeah all-encompassing that is I've definitely yeah definitely got a different a different experience. Outlook. Outlook is the word, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I think it's something that is kind of unique to the lower end of the Gen X and our generation. You know, we're the kind of at the forefront mm. of this kind of medical support, is what I'm going to call it. Um, reproductive support, I suppose. You know, we don't have our grandmothers to call up and say, hey, when you were going through your egg harvesting, no. you know, it's it's kind of... Yeah, we are that generation, Trying to we? work out how to support each other. Women are trying to work out how to support each other. Mm. You know, groups are only just forming support groups and forums. You know, it, it, it's not because we haven't cared. It's because it hasn't it's been new. available. It's new. If your life dream was to get married and have a child and then you meet that guy and you get married and then you're you having difficulties having a child, it must be soul-destroying. But imagine what it was like for our mothers and grandmothers who didn't have any kind of other pathway other than adoption. Yeah. And then it was a bit taboo, wasn't it? Like, oh, you know... Joy's down the road, she's had no, they never had children. They never had children. We don't really know why. I don't know why we're both whispering, but that was... Well, because it's reflective of, um, again, this kind of stigma that women have had to carry around their entire lives, which is if you are not going to reproduce and have children, where is your worth? Mm. There is something shameful about the yeah. fact that you cannot have children or that you didn't produce children. You know, you were not yeah. a suitable woman if you didn't produce an heir. 
Mm. And I don't think, as much as we would like to believe that the tide has completely changed on that, it's still there. People yeah. are still feeling less than if they are reproductively challenged. Yeah. And I think that narrative has to change. It's not, it, it's, you know, I totally understand that there are some women out there who desperately, desperately want to have children. And my heart bleeds for them that that can't happen for them naturally. And thank goodness that there are options, options for them these days. Mm. But, you know, your worth is not dependent on whether or not no. you can conceive naturally or at all. It's not. I understand that some people really want to be mothers yeah. and that doesn't happen for them. And that's really fucking sad. But it doesn't make them less worthy of being alive no. and being human. And so I think that's why we whispered is because yeah. unconsciously you and I both believe it's the shame of not being able to have children. Yeah, yeah. That's bollocks. What bollocks? Well, on that note... You and your bollocks can bollocks. Me and my bollocks are going. You and your bollocks are going and I'm I'm gonna go out. Where are you gonna go? I'm gonna say I'm gonna go out on a hot date. With myself. Oh <laughs> I might go you. to the movies. Oh, that's a nice Ooh. idea. What was your favourite movie from the eighties? Goonies. Why did you steal that from me? Because I knew yours was the Goonies as well. Well, and stand by me. And the Breakfast Club was also pretty oh. good. Don't you forget about me. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Unashamedly 40, a special short series briefly interrupting my Unashamedly Human podcast. If you've loved this episode, please share it with your mates, rate and review, and head to the show notes to get in touch. Thanks for listening.